you could have more fulfillment and ease in your professional and personal life and still be ambitious. Join me, Kathy Onetto, founder of Sustainable Ambition, for conversations with experts, authors, and friends on what it means to live with sustainable ambition. Learn concepts, tips, and tools to craft a fulfilling career on your terms while still being ambitious and avoiding burnout. For show notes from this episode, visit sustainableambition.com slash podcast. Now, let's learn more to help you craft your career to support your life from decade to decade. On to today's conversation. Welcome to today's show, where I am joined by Jenny Blumenthal. Today, we're going to be discussing Jenny's new book titled Corporate Rehab, Ditch the Hustle Culture and Thrive Again. Jenny Blumenthal spent 20 years as an executive in corporate America, counseling Fortune 500 companies on growth strategy and digital transformation, and left during the pandemic pivot. She is now the CEO and founder of Corporate Rehab and coaches executive women looking to reach the next level of leadership without losing themselves in the process. She also serves as a professional speaker, an adjunct professor in strategy, and a board member. Jenny, I'm thrilled to have you here today and to talk about the book. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Kathy. I'm really happy to be here. So I'm excited to talk to you about the book, but first, before we delve into it, I often start here, which is to look at one's own career. And it's obviously, it's important to start here as well, because this is like central to the book, obviously. So can you share a little bit about your career journey? Like, where did you start out and what was the draw for you to the path that you took at the start? Sure. Um, so I started right out of school, UVA, as I understand you are too. Yes. Um, and I came to Washington, D.C., and I knew um, that I wanted to do something with nonprofits. I've always had some strong feeling of being called to serve. And so over my first five years of my career, I actually did nonprofit consulting, which took me all over the place and was so much fun um, to Wall Street bankers, to L.A. execs, to D.C. diplomats, all hosting these events. Um, and it was really fun. I had a great time with it. Decided at that point I needed to go back to business school uh, because I was a history undergrad and love people's stories. So it's no surprise I've wound up back in a place where I'm hearing people's stories all day and writing them. Um, but I wanted to make sure I had that uh, finance degree to complement more of the liberal arts that I had gone to school for. And so I went back to GW and got my MBA. And I really, at that point, you know, decided whether I was going to change. And I really had loved consulting so much because I really loved getting in there and solving tough problems. And I got to work with people in a way that I felt like I was serving them in terms of figuring out what the problem was and helping them navigate that. So I really fell uh, back into consulting and I wound up staying um, and wound up going through um, a number of different companies through acquisitions and wound up uh, the, a partner with a global consulting firm towards uh, the back part of my career. Wow. So you did make some pivots and kind of intentionally so in terms of what kind of drew you along. And so you've made a more recent pivot over the course of the pandemic. So that pandemic pivot, as we talked about in your intro, and so it's interesting from reading the book, it sounded like despite the craziness of that time during the pandemic, right, is that it actually became a time where you were able to kind of create a little bit of space mm -hmm. and actually hear yourself in a way. And, you know, it's not an easy move to 
step out of something that you've been committed to for so long that you've been driving for from an ambitious perspective and reaching a certain level, being a partner in a firm, and then choosing to kind of make a pivot and kind of step away. And I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit more, but I'm wondering if you can give us a little bit more context, like what was happening at your life prior to that time? And what was kind of the light bulb moment for you that made you decide to leave? Sure. Um, So some of the context is as I went up through the ranks in uh, different consulting firms that then wound up being acquired by this larger one that I that I wound up uh, leading at the, the end of the day was PwC. And at that point, I had had um, children, I'd gotten married, so my husband had his own career. My kids, by the end uh, of the the pandemic, uh, were in third and fifth grade, so still elementary schoolers. And so that really means that as I was climbing the corporate ladder and as I was considering making partner, I had pretty young kids at home and a husband who also had his own career. And so our life was one big hustle. <laughs> and I had uh, different ways of saying that, or people called it different things that, that you're this power couple or these super people or whatever. Um, and the reality was we just both kept our heads down. Um, he happens to be a surgeon. So he went through his own um, hazing to some extent in terms of going through you know the medical training. And, and that meant that I was doing a lot on my own. And then it was my turn and I went up for partner and that meant that he was doing a lot with the, you know, with the kids and managing things while I was traveling. And as I made partner and then started to rise in the ranks, um, the great part of that is I had a wider span of control. I was managing about $250 million practice and 300 people. Um, I was the only woman on our business unit's leadership team. And all of that I was very excited by because it meant that there was a ton of opportunity Um, not only to just be a leader in the, what I was doing and in terms of my day-to-day work, but also a chance to be a role model for some of the women that were coming behind me in a way that I didn't have. I felt like I had a handful of women um, who were married with kids whose husband also worked and that, and and a handful is intentionally chosen as a word because there really were only about five Um, because it's hard at a certain level to try to balance two careers and the family and, um, you know, and keep all of the, the balls in the air without letting any of them drop. And so at this point, right before the pandemic, um, I was on planes about three times a week. And so it was a lot. Um, and that was not only managing my own book of business, but that was flying around and being available for other partners as they were trying to close their business deals, doing internal meetings. And so at some point it got to be um, a challenge to really balance everything and have both of our careers plus be the type of mom I wanted to be. And what the pandemic really did for me was stop everything. (laughs) All the planes are grounded. Um, Everything got quiet. And I was able to really, you know, pay attention to the four people that live in this house and what relationships had been underdeveloped for some time or felt fine because we were both on autopilot. But whoa, wait a minute. We actually don't see the same way, you know, don't see things the same way, or maybe I haven't been as attuned to the kids as I wanted to be. And the biggest relationship I really needed to work on was the one with myself. Um, I was trying to turn myself into a pretzel to be everything for everybody. Um, In fact, in a story that now makes me cringe, that's in my book, um, there was one day and and the old version of me was really proud of this day. The new version of me makes me, it makes me really uh, cringe. Um, I had hosted a partnership breakfast in the morning in uh, Virginia. I raced home, changed into a shorts and t-shirt and volunteered for field day with the kids. And then I raced home and got my 
my uh, bag and jumped in an Uber to go host a dinner in New York City that same night that was black tie. And yes, I was doing it all, but um, I was I was really exhausted. Um, and so much of that really kind of sets the context for when I decided to make a change. Things were so fast and furious um, that I really hadn't hadn't stopped to ask myself whether I really wanted some of the opportunities that were opening up in front of me or whether they were just the next logical step in a career um, towards someone else's dream. And that's really what the pandemic did for me is help me ask some of those hard questions like, why have I stayed in a scenario that maybe I've outgrown or why have I not told, you know, certain bosses that, no, I actually don't want this these next steps on the checkerboard. I really want these other choices for me. And that's going to be the best thing for me overall. So that's really what was the context behind some of these decisions. Yeah. Wow. It does sound exhausting. Like some of those days where you're just like fitting it all in. Right. And um, really, like you're saying, you can really hear in that, like what hustle looks like, right. In reality, in a, in a real life scenario. And And yet like hearing all of that, it still takes a lot of courage. Like this, you talk about courage in your book too. It comes up a lot on this podcast to make a switch and to step away from something. And often people will say that. I'm sure you've heard it when you've told your story to people. Like, how did you have the courage to do that? And especially because when you left, you didn't know what was next. You just knew this isn't it anymore. And so I was curious, what was that like to leave without knowing what was next for you? Scary, very scary, Um, especially for someone who prides herself on her ambition and my, you know, getting things done um, brand to pivot out and say, who am I if I'm not running big teams and um, and driving business? And I felt very confident in my role as a mother and in terms of what I could do uh, for our family. But I didn't, unlike maybe some other people, I didn't grow up with any role models of stay-at-home moms at all in my neighborhood. Um, All of the moms I knew worked. And so the context of who am I if I'm not delivering value to my family in the context of a job, or if I'm not really more importantly, using my God-given talents in a way that feels productive and useful, then I'm wasting them. Um, And so that was a really big thing I had to unlearn (laughs) and really rethink about how I define value now and all of the different ways that we humans can create value in the world. Um, And just really unlearning that piece and peeling that back set the stage and made me free enough to dream about how do I want to add intentional value and where am I going to do that as opposed to hiding behind what I think sometimes gets um, boiled down to these sound bites or headlines of we pit roles against roles. You know, when when you and I went through college, it was like the mommy wars and the stay-at-home moms and the working moms as opposed to we're all just people, right? And, and part of the challenges, I think, when we have these roles take on more of our identity than we intended to, it's very easy to get to a point where you know, you wake up and realize, well, boy, I'm assigning a lot more value to this. It's become part of my identity and maybe even my personality more so than I intended. I always intended to have a career. I always intended to feel really proud of my career. Did I intend to work 60 plus hours a week and be constantly flying away from my children? No, that wouldn't have been on my vision board in college or as a child. Um, And so I think it's very easy for us to kind of get to this point where we just take the next step and the next step and the next step. And if we don't stop, and listen and look around, sometimes we aren't really sure how we got to this place. And that's really 
where things were for me. Um, I think the bravery comment is really interesting. I think um, if I had to be honest with myself, my soul was telling me what I needed to do about 10 years prior. Um, and I said, be quiet. <laughs> this is not useful information. This is not going to help me get to the next level. Just hush. I know I'm supposed to do more serving and I'm supposed to make some different decisions, but I need to, there's that brass ring and that's what I'm programmed to do. And I'll get the brass ring and then I'll volunteer or then I'll be more creative. And then I'll tap into all these other gifts that I know are inside of me. And, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with that to some extent, because if people feel called to follow their ambition and sometimes you have to hustle, you got to hustle to get to the next level. You got to hustle to put food on the table sometimes or pay rent. But I think when it becomes the way of life and it becomes the only thing, you know, and you're stuck in it, just like an automatic gear, that's where it's really dangerous because these programming that we have in our subconscious and in our minds and our bodies or souls, depending on how you believe in that really keeps us moving down these paths and doing things without us really being honestly intentional about how we want to spend that time. So I think honestly, the, the biggest, um, it was hard to leave. Um, but I was at a point where I knew that, um, the job as I was living it, or as I was currently in, it was slowly killing me. Um, and I felt at that point that I, I couldn't afford to stay. Um, and I think the true bravery actually came next, <laughs> which was taking a really long, hard look at what part of this was me and my own mindsets and patterns and beliefs that I had to then face down and what part of it was the environment or a specific boss. Um, and to really get honest about that, because again, it's really easy to just say, oh, it's a toxic work culture, or it's just because, you know, I had this one interaction years ago and it's just my personality. It's a lot harder to look directly at your, you know, demons, truth, honesty, whatever that is, and make peace with it or try to go about the, the process of figuring out, you know, really what intentionally you want to do and then not making excuses for the way you've led your life up till now and what you want to do moving forward. Yeah. Wow. So much insight in what you just shared, Jenny. I mean, you know, if I even just go back, I want to pull through a few things to get to the next question, but like even you sharing, like that voice was likely calling me 10 years prior. And I hear this as well from other people. And it's interesting because I think we do get subtle clues, but we don't always listen to them, as you said, and there's reasons for that. And then the other thing that you're talking about is also this, and I appreciate that you bring this up, the sense of taking responsibility, acknowledging that the world is not structured in a way, especially to support women in being able to do it all, right? And I don't think we can do it all and have it right. all necessarily at the same time. But having said that, it still would be helpful when women have been a significant part of the workforce for some time, and frankly, has been part of the reason why we've had continued GDP growth. And so it's like, hello, when are we going to restructure the work environment to accommodate that or to acknowledge it and to acknowledge that even fathers are more engaged in their children's lives today too. And so there are a lot of structural things that have to happen. And yet 
there's also, you know, you talk about this and I'm going to get the quote wrong here, but you know, like have the courage to change the things you can, right? We can only control what we can control and try to make some, and this is what you're doing with your book too, try to knock at some of those things that do need to change. And yet, you know, what you talk about in the book too, and I think this is really interesting because I find it in my work too, which is like, you talk about the language of like, people get lost, right? And I kind of say, it's so interesting how often it is that people are like, I have no idea what I want. Right. And then you also talk about how people, and you had some quotes in the book too, where it was almost like people avoided knowing by staying busy and you know, also not acknowledging or realizing that they have choice in the matter. And I think you even said like in the book at some point, like to realize that, you know, people have choice all along, you know, and you don't necessarily realize it. So what do you think about that in terms of like, why do women in particular, but probably other people as well end up getting lost and getting a little addicted to that hustle, if you will, and staying busy. Um, And, and how do you, break out of that? (laughs) (laughs) That's a great question. Um, We could probably take up the whole time just on that because I'm I'm so passionate, you know, deconstructing this. Well, first, you made a point that I want to just pick up on. There are some very particular gender differences to the workplace in terms of women's advancement and the way work is set up that I absolutely want to focus on. Uh, I also believe strongly that in terms of getting disconnected from ourselves or lost, that is a gender neutral uh, piece or term to that. Um, and the process that I talk about in the book works whether you're a man or a woman or regardless of what you identify as. Um, but the actual perceptions that you might be carrying around, things that were programmed into you as a child, experiences that you had are absolutely going to be impacted um, by your gender, but not only your race, your sexual orientation, anything that might influence how others perceive and interact with you in the world. And so I, I think that's important because even though I happen to be a white woman and so many of the stories that I captured were mostly women of all socioeconomic and racial backgrounds, this is the same thing for men too. We get disconnected from ourselves if we think about it that way. And I think that there's... Um, we talk a little bit about this in the book. There's one piece that's very clear in our minds where we get disconnected. And that's really based on however you as a child is where it starts. However you sought to understand the world is really where it all begins. And one of the things when I left and I started to figure out what I was going to do next, and I first said, I'm going to do some work on myself And I started learning all these things that we're just not taught. We're not taught the mental, the social, the emotional health and wellness. Most of us, um, you know, by our families of origin, because how would they know by our, it's certainly not in most classrooms. And so, you know, I feel like we've been equipped with one portion of how to deal with our humanity. And we have to get to a certain point in our lives where we figure out the other parts. And I think that's important because one of the things I learned was that your worldview as a person is set in place by the time you're seven. So that means by the time you're a first grader, you've looked around yourself and said, I can understand what situations are joyful and which ones look dangerous. I know what people I can trust and whether the world is a scary place. Um, I know the the things that will give me pra- get me praise and the things that will get me scolded. Um, and if you think about it that way, and this is all new science, we're only learning this in the last couple of years, right? So in some ways, we can't really fault our grandparents and even our parents that didn't have access to this information. This is brand new neuroscience, right? But if you think about that, 
that means that that first grader is saying, hmm, when I tell my mom I'm scared, she tells me, don't be scared. There's nothing to be scared about. I better just not tell her how I feel. Or my dad only seems to give me attention when I come home with an A. I better perform and get that A so that he'll give me that attention. Um, and, I, and again, it, it's nothing to judge necessarily the generations that came before us. But when now that we understand that, you can really extrapolate even just that programming to understand there's things that are hard coded into the oldest parts of our brain that are telling us messages like, I need to perform to get love. I'm nothing if I don't have enough to support my family. Being a man means I take care of the people around me and my status is going to make me feel safe. I don't have to feel vulnerable if I know I can provide. Um, you know, all of those types of things are things that are running in our subconscious so that when you're at those little crossroads and saying, should I stay or should I go or should I work harder or not? A lot of times those things are pushing you without you even realizing it. And so some of this work is actually just bringing that things that those things in your subconscious into the conscious, being aware of the voices that talk in your head when you, when you've messed something up, do you scream at yourself and say, I should have known better. Or do you say, ah, I just didn't get it right this time, but I'll do it better next time. And depending on which of those voices you're indulging, um, or feeding, um, that's really going to drive a lot of your behavior. Cause it's, it's these constant, you know, programs that are kind of running in the background. So I think that's one thing, um, that's very real that keeps us focused and keeps us moving. The other piece you mentioned was if we don't stop and get quiet and listen. It's very hard to tell whether something is really truly meant for you or if it's just the next right thing or it's something that somebody needs, so I better do it. Um, I have a recent probably example of this that um, as I was trying to get the book launched and there was so much activity, I found myself in back again in these like 30 minute blocks of I gotta get this done and that done. But now I'm more in touch with how my body actually feels, which is kind of the second clue. So you've got your mindsets, but then you also have your body and feeling the heart racing and the anxious thoughts and all of those things. I now can recognize it as stress and cortisol really, you know, flowing through my veins. But I was just choosing that before and not realizing and thinking it was just excitement. And so whenever I was stressed, it was, oh, good, this is okay, I'm going to use this. I'm going to channel it to really nail that presentation. And again, in short bursts, that's fine, right? But we wouldn't expect you to sprint a marathon. And that's really what's happening is that the, the pace of today's work is saying we used to sprint and then rest and sprint and rest. Now it's just sprint always on, right? And there's a lot of reasons for that. We've got a 24-hour, 24-7 news cycle. We've got globalization, which helps in a lot of ways. But that means that if you're in a global company, you're up at 6 a.m. for a call with Shanghai, and then you go to bed at 10 p.m. with a call to India. I mean, there's just this always on culture that executives I spoke with and I saw, um, and I lived a lot of it, um, where our bodies are under enormous amounts of stress. Um, so much so that the World Health Organization actually reclassified the definition of burnout in 2019 before the pandemic to say it was chronic, unmanaged workplace stress was one of the, the definitions that they added to burnout instead of just, you know, regular old burnout. <laughs> so the point is, it's we keep this in our minds where there's a lot of that going on, but then there, it also shows up with, in our bodies. And then there's the souls uh, or spirits uh, where you can, you know, you get messages, you know, in, in one way or another, whether that's, whew, I don't know if I should take this extra 
flight or, you know, and sometimes they're a little bit more smack you across the face. Um, a lot of the women I interviewed for the book, I wound up interviewing 300 of them had physical ailments or spiritual things that all of a sudden I knew this job was bad for me when my hair started falling out. Um, those types of things. So those are all messages, you know, to you from you, um, to really start to tune in and, and make some of these decisions for yourself. Well, and you, you know, I was curious about this because there are these signals, right? And I wonder if it has to get that dire. And if you have any suggestions for like, how should people be paying attention or to what should people be paying attention when they start to realize they've reached that point where like their job is taking more than it's giving? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think part of it is um, the first step is really just understand what's your job's job? Like, what is it giving you? And what are you there for? Because I think that's one thing we don't really ask ourselves. And we might've gotten propelled into the workforce by parents saying, go get a 30 year career and you'll get a gold watch, you know? And so we're just out there trying to, um, you know, have enough or be enough or do enough. Um, And we don't reevaluate that as our lives change, as we get older to say, you know, is there something different I want from my job? So I think that's the first place to start um, because then you can know, do I want a job to have purpose and meaning? Uh, Or is that not important to me because I get purpose and meaning from volunteer work or from a faith-based organization and I just need my job to pay the bills and stay out of politics. There's plenty of people that feel that way and more power to them, right? This next generation within Gen Z and even even Gen Alpha does not feel that way. They are saying, I want more meaning and purpose within my jobs, broadly speaking, obviously. Um, But the stats are really strongly compelling that more and more of the generation that's coming behind us, which are pretty quickly going to be the managers and the leaders in the workforce within the next five years, are saying, I do want more of that. So that's going to be really important when you've got a multi-generational workforce for you and for your teams to understand what are people expecting from work um, so that you know, if I'm expecting it to give purpose and it's not giving purpose, then boy, that that's a red flag versus I just need it to be stable and secure. And really what's hurting me is the fact that it's 60 hours work weeks and that's the issue. And I really, because then you know what you're fixing. True consultant, can't ever take it out of me. Got to start with the right problem that we're solving. So you got to know whether it's boundaries that you're trying to fix for or whether there's a values or a purpose mismatch within the company. And I think this can get a little bit, um, you know, charged when people talk about purpose because there's the company purpose and then there's yours, right? And that can, I believe that can change over time. There, I, I feel like probably 75% of the women that I coach are like, really embarrassed to tell you this, but I don't know my purpose. I'm like, not many people come into the world knowing what their purpose is. You know, it's, it's something that you can be called to. There can be passion. I knew I was going to serve in some capacity, but that's pretty broad. I mean, so I think there's elements that as I've gotten, you know, older and as I've gotten um, different perspectives on what that could mean, now that's gotten to a point where I'm on a mission to help women heal the C-suites of America. Um, I don't, you know, that's something that's very important to me now. Maybe that'll change in another five years. And so I think there's this openness, but there's, to me, there shouldn't be shame when that individual mission doesn't align with the company mission. There should just be this honest conversation that, hey, I want to do something different. Or again, if I just need this job to pay the paycheck and I'm getting that mission fulfilled elsewhere, that's okay. Um, I think sometimes when we talk about purpose-driven companies, then there's this big knee-jerk reaction of, oh, we have a purpose, don't worry, you know, and and that's okay, but it might not be the exact purpose of that employee. And 
that's fine. And I think that's one of those things to understand what's your job's job before you can look at answering that question. Um, I think the other element of that is how does your stomach feel the night before a Monday morning? Um, and if you start to get to a point where you're seeing physical symptoms, you're you know taking it out on your family, um, that was me. I definitely had the Sunday scaries and everything had to be laundry done and meals prepared. Everything had to be done so that I could not feel guilty about leaving on a 7 a.m. flight on Monday. Um, and so I think it's just paying attention to those things and understanding, again, if I know why I'm doing this and what the job is, then am I comfortable with whatever the other side of that seesaw is and what I'm giving up in order to have the job? I really appreciate so much of what you shared. And I really like that you're bringing it back to like a self-definition of like, what is your job for you and tying it back to values. And then I also appreciate this focus on purpose as well, because I, I get a little passionate about this too, in a sense of um, <laughs> just building on what you're saying, both that I think that people can find purpose where they stand. And I agree with you that it can change and that it also doesn't have to be a lofty purpose. You right. know, it can be just, my purpose is to be the best team partner that I can possibly be and to contribute to the whole of the organization, right? I mean, that could right. be your purpose. <laughs> and so oftentimes I think people get lost in the sense of, of, you know, what's my purpose and it can get right. really intimidating and just too big, you know? Yes, I agree. I always, in my coaching practice, I always have women phrase it as to do X, whatever that phrases so that why, which is the impact on the world. And that I think keeps you honest that it could be, you know, the, the world could be your team, right? But I could be the best team leader so that my team feels supported so that we're able to create new solutions to help people retain jobs. So that whatever that is, I think if you can end that sentence, it gives people meaning in whatever it is that they're doing, as opposed to them saying, well, I don't feel like there is meaning. And so therefore, I guess I'll just leave. I think there's team leads have a, um, whether that's CEOs or whether that's managers on the ground, have a huge opportunity to help define that meaning in the work that we do, because there's such dignity in a job. Um, but it's just a matter of trying to connect the dots sometimes for people and helping them see themselves in this broader organization. I, I wholeheartedly agree. Yes. And and what's what's so interesting about that is I don't think that's a heavy lift, to be honest with you. Right. And yet it's just a matter of taking a little bit of time to dedicate to it. And yet it could pay dividends for everyone involved, right? Yeah. I mean, just aligning that or having a conversation about that can make work more joyful for everyone, yeah. frankly. Yeah. So Absolutely. it's really interesting. Yeah. Well, I, want, I was curious as well, you know, about what do you think are some of the big lies we are told about how to approach our careers? Mm. Um, I think, um, you already mentioned the, you know, we can do it all. And I do think that is a big lie because I think women, just as they got catapulted into the workforce in the seventies, were told, you know, you can be anything. And I think we all just assumed that meant we had to be everything. So there's definitely, um, actual structural challenges with the way that work is set up to your point. It's, I feel very strongly it's set up for a 1950s white male. Um, it's like, I mean, it, it hasn't really changed that much since Mad Men. Maybe there's been more lawsuits and less smoking in the office, <laughs> maybe. Um, but I, I, other than that, you know, the things that would actually help full employment, which to your point, women have a huge role in GDP, would be things like universal childcare, would be things like, you know, making sure that there's actual boundaries. 
things that are focused on caregiving as opposed to assuming that women are always playing that role. Um, and the more female executives I speak to, they're now, you know, in their 40s and 50s, and now it's parental caregiving, whether they are actually giving that care or whether they're saying, I can't afford to leave the C-suite job because they're paying for you know parental care, which is extremely expensive. And so I think that's um, one big lie that we're told is like, you can be anything, you can't be everything, you can't do it all at the same time. I don't think we were meant to do it all. I think that benefits one group in our population much more than it does the other. Um, but I think the other two lies that I hear on a daily basis is one, there's not enough, and that's a scarcity model. So I better get mine before someone else gets theirs. It gets reinforced again through our bodies and our minds from whatever you grew up with. If you, you know, hey, I, you can't be last to the dinner table or you don't get to eat kind of thing. I, I'm from a big Irish Catholic family. Um, or it can be reinforced in our cultures within the way we do performance systems. I have, you know, I worked with so many companies that said we reward, reward on total performance, but at the end of the day, they goal based on individual production. And then they'd say, I can't figure out why people are backstabbing or what's happened to our culture. So just really aligning those metrics um, and not playing into there's not enough. So, you know, there's this scarcity. I think if you're able to shift out of that, that it doesn't, you don't have to take from others, but instead try to grow the pie is one of the big lies. And then that translates in individually to I'm not enough. Um, and that's really what I see a lot of people and they would, they wouldn't necessarily say, oh, I believe I'm not enough, but it shows up as again, paying attention to what they say to themselves when no one else is around things like I should have known that, you know, the, the boss was going to ask for that board deck and maybe I, sh I should have just done that. And which is really based on like, I'm not good enough, or I should have had all this information, Right. For working moms that I speak with or stay-at-home moms, a lot of it's like, oh, the kids got sick because I should have known to wash their hands an extra time as if you could have, you know, changed that outcome. I definitely was guilty of that. So I think that not enoughness and the way to work against that is to replace it with a new mantra of I'm exactly enough or I'm, I'm doing the best I can with what I have right now. I made the best decision given the data that I had and it's enough. Um, and I think there's a big um, element of both individuals not feeling enough that proves, makes us hustle outside of ourselves for our worth. And then companies that are basically saying there isn't enough, we have to get more, we have to grow X amount of percent. Because if we don't, the competition will you know, eat us alive. And there's some truth there, but how are you balancing those messages with the way you reward people, what you expect of them, whether you expect them to take on this invisible work or or take on whatever it takes to get the goal done that's really where burnout has has soared in those type of scenarios so i think those are the big lies we can do it all and we should do it all there's a you know there's not enough and i'm not enough mm. thank you for sharing those and you know so there's this truth to kind of like the structural elements there's these lies we're told and yet you know, I've stepped down on my own. You're doing your own thing now. And sometimes when I talk with others about this, I'm like, you know, it's not necessarily the easier path. It does allow us a little bit more ownership and flexibility yeah. in how we craft our lives. And yet, you know, for many people, the structure of a corporate environment or having a set job can, can be a little bit easier. Yeah. Yet there's all these challenges. And so I'm curious if you have any tips for like, okay, 
you, you need to start seeing, not, you know, see yourself again, mm-hmm. start to take control and like break this hustle culture kind of addiction. Where do you point people to start to, you know, you have your book, you have your methodology of the rehab, like, you know, what does it look like for people to be able to actually continue to live in the corporate world and yet be more whole and be themselves? Well, um, I can tell you, I definitely feel strongly that there's uh, there's some benefit in the in the rehab approach that I introduced in the book. So I'll walk you through that. Um, but one of the things I think that it's a good place to start is if we go back to high school and we think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, so much of the hustle culture is predicated on you staying in that bottom part of the triangle with just safety and security. I need this job. The world's out to get me. If I don't you know, make my numbers first, then I'm going to fall in the rankings. This other person's going to get the job. And you know, and, and there's very real reasons that our ancestors were in survival mode a lot of the time. A lot of them survived wars and really grew up and, and imbued in us these values of hard work and dedication and all these things that keep us really focused on survival. But the way it's supposed to work is once you meet those needs of survival, safety, food, water, security, you're supposed to evolve up the pyramid to then look for connection, then look for esteem or or different roles, and then purpose and self-actualization. And so when you think about those different movements, and then you look at some of the um, behaviors you might have seen, if not in your own organization, then any good 80s movie about a boss or somebody in the workplace, Um, office space comes to mind, you can really start to look at if there's people that are operating from that lowest level and you can bounce up and down, but a lot of times they're operating back from that survival when their survival is threatened, they're first going to protect that before they worry about connection and before they worry about purpose. And so if someone's trying to make ends meet, or if they were raised by a parent who had financial troubles, it's going to be really hard for them to shift out of that piece and say, I'm just going to focus on purpose, right? And and so part of it is telling yourself that you're safe um, or that you have enough and those types of things. And sometimes that's just a mindset. A lot of times with the women I work with, we go through, you know, a checklist and say, you know, what do you really need to cover? And do you have enough so that you can actually tell yourself that it's enough and you can actually free yourself up to go chase these other pieces? So I think that's one thing is just understanding when you feel yourself triggered or you showed up in a way that you didn't really want to, where are you on that hierarchy of needs? And is there something that's making you feel like your, your identity or your survival is being threatened? Um, so part of what I like to coach to is the rehab process. So when I went through this process for myself, like any good consultant, I said, I'm going to document some of these steps because I had so many friends calling and saying, well, what did you listen to? Tell me the podcast I should read. Give me the article I should read. And so I started organizing all of it because it's overwhelming to say, here's the treasure trove of 50 things to go read. Um, And that's really what became the rehab process, which stands for R is recognize your life's um, decisions and the context for your values. E is evaluate some of your patterns and relationships, including energy and and, uh, time management that and boundaries. H is heal uh, across mind, body, and spirit, doing any of the work on yourself that you can actually start to reconnect um, and heal some things that, that you might not have ever known that were there. 
uh, but also reconnect with your body as you start to move forward. Arise and grow is the fun part. You get to add playback and experiment with things and, and really focus on things that light you up. And then build is basically we end with a roadmap of uh, new dimensions of your life or career. Um, and for some of the, the women I've worked with, it's I need to get out of this toxic scenario I'm in, help me with a six month plan to reset my career, redo my resume and, you know, apply for this something else. I have others that have said, you know, I know I'm about to come back from maternity leave and I need a plan for how I'm going to actually manage my boundaries or my time, or I'm about to retire in three years. I want to rebrand myself on that perspective um, and claim back some hobbies that I've, I've lost time for. Um, and so it really just gives everybody a chance, especially those of us who are type A planners, um, a chance to have a chart or a roadmap to how you're going to make some of these changes in your life. And so that's my best advice because I think otherwise it can get really overwhelming if you say, well, I'm just going to leave and do a totally different job. That's a whole job in and of itself looking for another job. Um, or, oh, I just, I'm just going to start to put boundaries and maybe that's going to be the thing that fixes it. Um, in our work together, usually we try to diagnose like what's actually going on. What are the things that are holding you back and those limiting beliefs? And then figure out what you need to do to shift those so that you can you know, step into a new role or step back into your existing role with just a different mindset. What I appreciate th about that is that, you know, it's it's often that people think that it's just the environment that needs to change. And so then they jump to another role yeah. in company and they realize like, uh-oh, nothing's changed. And right. so, you know, it kind of brings forward that element of it that we are a part of the equation as well. Right. Again, there are these systematic things, but it's helpful to know, right, if they, what you're describing is like, we do need to do some of the work to yeah. kind of break these you know, limiting beliefs or patterns, as you're saying, to start to craft what's new right. and how you can step into what's new for yourself in a different way. That's right. Yeah. And I think it's it's so important because I, I certainly would never be, um, you know, victim blaming for people who are actual victims of abuse that's happening in a workplace or elsewhere. But the challenge with that is if you've been exposed to something, now your brain, unfortunately, is the best computer in the world. And in some ways, that's amazing. But now it's run a program that says, oh, when I spot jerk boss, I know how to deal with jerk boss. So therefore, I'll be more likely to seek out jerk boss, um, unfortunately. And so that's why we find ourselves back in these patterns that sometimes just aren't good for us, but the brain recognizes it for, as familiar and knows what to do. And so... I think that's the kind of challenge that it takes and, and the opportunity that you really have. It's an invitation, as one of my friends likes to call it, um, to really, you know, retrain your brain and reprogram that to say, you know what, that actually isn't so good for me. I'm going to look for an environment with these characteristics, and maybe I'm willing to sacrifice a little bit of salary for that, or maybe I'm willing to drive further or whatever it might be um, so that I can be in a situation that feels healthier. Mm. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. So before I wrap up, Jenny, I'd love to ask you your opinion on ambition. I mean, this is the Sustainable Ambition podcast, but what's interesting to me is that I think one of the things, and you've talked about this a little bit and you talk about it in the book, but one of the things that I think is often hard for people is navigating the tension between their ambitions that they have across life. And that could be at different times in their life or, you know, in a moment in time. Um, and you share a few examples of this in the book where 
women still have had a drive for certain activities or they don't want to lose certain parts of themselves. And you also say in the book that you yourself are ambitious. So I'm curious, like at this stage, being on the other side and kind of where you're standing now, do you have a, I'm curious how you think about ambition now. Uh, That's a great question. So um, I think if I had to think about it from before, I probably would have described it as the end. Like it is a goal to be ambitious and achieve the things that you get when one is ambitious. Now I think of it more as that means to the end, that what am I using and applying my ambition towards? What am I directing to happen through my ambition? Um, and, And if you are very clear on what that outcome is, and you're clear about how you're treating yourself and others as you go about it, then I think that that you have a much higher chance of the ambition being applied in a really healthy way. If you're being ambitious because you are running on an old belief that winning is everything at all costs, and it doesn't matter what happens as long as you win, which unfortunately I've had some bosses I've interacted with that that's almost verbatim on a slide, um, that can cause some unhealthy behavior. And so I think as long as you're, you're in touch with what you're directing your ambition towards, you're gonna have a much better sense of making sure you're checking yourself that you're applying it towards the things that are most valuable to you. So you also shared earlier what your own purpose is. I was curious, what are your ambitions for this book and the work you're doing now? Like if, if you had a wish for women and all workers, like what would it be? Yeah, Well, that's an interesting one because I do have this big ambition to heal the C-suite across corporate America um, and to do that in a way where I can meet people where they are because most of us don't realize we need this healing and say, oh, I'm different. Here's my exception. Um, That's always my funny um, thing. Whenever I start to tell people, they say, oh, I love your work, but you know, unfortunately I could never do that because I have to work 80 hours a week. I'm like, well, that's kind of the point. <laughs> Let's revisit whether that's the really the case or not. Um, but I think that there's this, I have this huge ambition to heal because I do think we're using just a fraction of our abilities as humans. We're very driven by this masculine driven energy. We all have feminine and masculine energy within us, but we, the corporate world at least is, and maybe society at large is driven by this masculine achieving, doing, conquering, shouting, anger, those types of things versus the more feminine empathy, compassion, collaboration. I would like to see those balanced because I don't think we can drive even harder at the pace that we're at without sacrificing more of our humanity. I think the next generation of leaders is going to have to balance the head and the heart, the feminine, the masculine, however you want to say it. We can't afford to have more um, you know, robber barons in the C-suite that aren't balanced by the rest of the, the you know, humanity that they actually have access to within them, but has never been rewarded in whatever culture that they've lived in or worked in. And so I think that's a huge opportunity for us. Um, and when I say that, I think it's it's lofty enough to, to stay with without me having to get into the three-year roadmap. Um, part of the challenge of doing this work myself is to stop myself from trying to launch three companies at the same time and take on 10 initiatives. So I'm trying to take my own advice. Um, and part of what's interesting for me at the, in this chapter is as long as I have that purpose and I know what I'm, I'm really on this earth to do for this moment in time, maybe that'll change then I'm trying to stay open to what else will come across my path that I can't even see right now because 
I just need to do the next right thing um, or the next few things um, and let the, the path unfold. And so far in the last two years, that's um, worked out a lot better than I had expected. So it's a really interesting exercise for recovering a uh, poster child for the hustle culture and type A um, drive to kind of balance that myself. So we'll see. Stay tuned. Yeah, I love it. And we'll certainly follow along and champion uh, the purpose that you carry. So one of the things I also, just as we wrap up here, want to kind of pull forward is I love the picture of you at the end of the book that, you know, is I think maybe you driving and your hair is kind of blowing in the wind. And you know, I know that, yes, you just, you have this big purpose and you're doing this work uh, that you've shared with us and getting pulled like, uh, there can be so many things I could do here. And yet I also know, having read the book that you're running, you're doing poetry, you're playing ice hockey. So right. I'm curious, just like, what is your life like now versus mm -hmm. where you started? Yeah, it's, um, I probably think it's, it's just as full in, but just in different ways. So there's times I'm still hustling, like getting book promotion stuff done. Um, but I think I'm, I'm much more intentional about that. I'm actually really intentional about the time that I spend with my family and with myself, which is different um, than I think I was doing before. Um, I was before covering everybody's needs, like you're taking care. Okay. Now it's the dog's turn. Now it's, you know, versus now I'm trying to tune in and, and maybe that's also you know, somewhat of my own growth of where I am in my mid forties. It's also my middle schoolers because they don't need shoes tied. They need someone there when a friend's mean or when they get invited to the dance. And, and it's those moments. Um, unfortunately, when I was, you know, living a lot of time in, um, on, in a, in an airplane, um, you can't be there. You can't really choose when they're going to tell you something right when they get home from school versus when it's going to be at bedtime or when you're ready to listen to it. So I think I'm just more present um, overall. It doesn't mean that it's easy. To your point, the entrepreneurial side of things is a choice. Um, I definitely have much more autonomy, which is what I was looking for, um, which is another piece that's a very big intrinsic motivation. So that's important to me. Um, and that part is, is very useful. But um, I think, you know, what I told one of my bosses when I left, um, as I said, I don't know what I'm going to do next. I just can't do this anymore right now. And I'm looking for more life in my life. And I think that's what I would describe is that I found ways to add life back into my life. And I am so grateful for it. And sometimes that means it's actually looking at the pain of past decisions. And sometimes it means running in the park with my puppy. Um, but uh, but I'm here for all of it. And I'm, I'm so grateful for that. Oh, I love that. You've put more life in your life. Uh, well, Jenny, this has been fabulous. Thank you so much. If people want to get in touch with you or find the book, where can we point them? Yes, the website's the easiest way to do that. So it's www.corporate-rehab.com. You can see the executive um, coaching packages, some of the speaking keynote options there. And then of course, how to order the book as well and uh, know that I'm cheering you on. Fabulous. Thank you so much. It's been so nice to have you on. You as well, Kathy. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sustainable Ambition Podcast. I hope you take away at least one learning or inspiration from today's conversation. Find more inspiring interviews and get show notes for this episode at sustainableambition.com slash podcast. Make sure you don't miss an episode or my insider tips, guides, and tools 
by signing up for Sustainable Ambition Forum, my twice monthly newsletter. Sign up at sustainableambition.com slash subscribe. And remember, it's not about finding work-life balance. It's about building work-life resilience. Thanks again for joining me. Speak with you next time.